0: If you're a student of Latin American history, you'll realize that for decades, the region fought against foreign ownership of their infrastructure. So when it became an issue of the United States and France and Germany and the UK owning their ro- railroads, telegraph and telephone and other utilities, the region oftentimes nationalized or had an uprising or otherwise fought to regain ownership of these things. This is in the 50s, 60s, and even 70s. So I don't understand why all of a sudden that could be imperialism, but today you can let the Chinese do, do exactly that. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be a country that has its infrastructure, public utilities owned by another country.
1: This is the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoela. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. Today, we're so thrilled to have Juan Cruz on the podcast. Uh, now, just a brief background for those who may not be familiar with this distinguished career. So now, Juan has spent over 30 years in and out of national security agencies and intelligence community in the U.S. government, and he most recently was a special assistant to the president and senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the National Security Council. Prior to that, he served in the State Department, where his overseas postings included Brazil, Colombia, Honduras, Mexico, and Venezuela, among others. Juan played a crucial role in the Trump administration's Venezuela and Cuban policies and broader Western Hemisphere strategy. He now serves as a non-resident senior advisor at CSIS since retiring from government in 2019. Juan, it's a true pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. And we're excited to have this conversation ahead. Thank
0: you very much. Thanks for having me, Andre. Ryan.
2: Thanks, Juan. So let's start off with big picture U.S. goals in Latin America. Now, as Andre mentioned, you were senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the NSC. So what were the priorities? What have the priorities of the Trump administration been? And how have they differed from the Obama administration when we look to Latin America?
0: Well, certainly I had a Great opportunity to jump in in the administration in its early months, and as it was sculpting its Latin America uh, policy. So right up front, the president focused um, exclusively on the issue of Cuba and reversing Cuba policy. Um, He also uh, had placed special emphasis on uh, renegotiating NAFTA with Mexico and Canada. Uh, He had declared and moved forward uh, his interest in redefining a policy. With Venezuela, he has a genuine interest in issues of um, counter narcotics, and uh, lastly, uh, his interest in um, combating uh, illegal immigration and his interest in building a wall and how that and just to pick those topics and how I, I would compare them to the Obama administration. Well, clearly, Cuba is one of those that you know you do. It's the polar opposite. Of course, it was reversing Obama's so-called normalization uh, with Cuba on Mexico it just hadn't even I don't think come across too many people's screens that we needed to update and modernize an agreement that was you know over 20 years old and um, in the case of uh, Venezuela we had spent uh, quite a bit of time in the Obama administration just uh, watching the situation unfold with not you know in the even at one point, entering into some initial negotiations. And then on the issue of counter-narcotics, I think that, you know, while there may not be great differences in the ultimate objective, uh, the approach was, uh, slightly different. And of course, clearly immigration is one of those areas where you, where, uh, it's polar opposite between those two camps. And if you permit me just to comment, um, you know, uh, and to throw out that, uh, Vice President Biden, in his in his own interest in the region, is going to borrow some from his association of the Obama administration. A lot of those team members have gravitated from, um, you know, the Obama White House to the, you know, Biden um, uh, campaign. And uh, l- luckily for us in Latin America, the Latin Americanists across the board in the U.S. government and in in our parties uh, tend to be qualified, competent, experienced folk, and. And so if you look at the Biden campaign itself, it's going to borrow uh, from experienced hands that were involved in these topics. And some of them, you know, we're going to probably revert to the status quo ante in some form. Uh, I I think on an issue like Cuba, uh, we can expect a a bit of whiplash. And uh, on Venezuela, you know, there's a lot of... um, Solidarity on Venezuela it's a bipartisan issue uh, and and immigration I think we again we can expect a deliberate change if you allow me that uh, uh, that quick comparison
1: definitely I think uh, those insights are going to be really valuable just because we're releasing this episode the day before the election, so I think regardless of uh, who wins. Uh, certainly, there will be some uh, similarities, but obviously also some differences. Uh, but now, I guess, to contextualize these topics for our larger audience, many of whom are young people, many of whom may not be familiar with these histories and these issues so uh, comprehensively. Uh, why is Latin America such a crucial region for U.S. interests? And how does it fit into broader U.S. grand strategy? So, for example, like, what are we doing right? And what policy ships would you like to see in the future?
0: Wow, you know, this question could be answered from so many different directions. Like, why be interested in Latin America? That's, that's our neighborhood. We often um, consider, you know, um, the Latin America and the Caribbean to be like our third border. Um, we're pointed uh, south. Look at the affinity of our country and our makeup. Over 16 million Hispanics in our country that's almost 20% of the population, if we added to that, um, the folk from the region who aren't Hispanic, I'm thinking particularly, you know, the Caribbean, uh, that number creeps up a little bit. So there's a piece of affinity there. I'm tempted also to raise things that are of a, um, you know, clear security nature, everything from having um, uh, like-minded approaches to security. But we also have the issue of trade, right? Mexico's our number one trading partner. It's the only Latin American country that shares a lo- uh, land border, and and it's a huge one with all the issues that it brings along. Mexico, U.S. supply chain—that's become an interesting topic to talk about since COVID. And uh, COVID blew open the, our weaknesses in our supply chain, and uh, Mexico and the region are a response to that. Uh, they're uh, of the three uh, out of the six largest economies in the region. Three have the U.S. as its number one trading partner. Um, It's uh, also on the flip side, you know, it's a gateway for a lot of things. It's a gateway. If things, if we had a threat to the United States and we were um, not paying attention to the region, it easily could be a gateway for terrorism. For example, a terrorist act uh, either being hatched, supported, or have some sort of signature from the region. Thus, we need to have strong partnerships with our friends. Um, and these nations, and make sure that no one takes advantage uh, of them to uh, harm us. And that's just to just mention a few things. I, and I would throw out a little bit also that if you look at the bigger the bigger issues that the U.S. has around the world, the global concerns, if you will, they're also reflected in the region. Whether it's you know the Russians' bad behavior of the Russians, or Iranian presence creeping in through uh, Venezuela, or the uh, Cubans, sort of a uh, dancing outside of their uh, area and then finally and more importantly for me is the role of china and an opportunity for, to push china back or push back on china rather in the region where it's this slow and deliberate incursion in a lot of areas and uh we need to make sure that uh that that we don't fall asleep and the switch there uh we've done a lot of things right um I, you know in the n- people use a lot of different uh, measuring sticks, but I would certainly say that if you, um, if you look at the issue of, let's just say, let's just pick Venezuela for one, very complicated issue. Uh, but the fact is that the U.S. has been able to bring together um, the uh, unity in the hemisphere on an issue. And if, if you're not familiar with Latin America, you know that it's there aren't that many examples where we've been successfully in the region being uh, able to coalesce behind an issue. And I think for the most part, this is a this is a, a success in that in in that realm. Um, and to speak about, lar- you know, bigger issues of like democracy. The region is, uh, you know, uh, largely democratic. Um Governments that, you know, they may have a problem here or there, but they're stable in, in especially in the face of multiple issues, not just COVID, but, you know, what COVID is doing to their economy. And in some parts of the region, there was expressions of instability uh, just before COVID. So, I mean, you know, it's—it's. It's, I think we can't um, undersell the contributions and be able to provide an environment that's uh, the kind of environment we would want to see for our, uh, uh, neighbors in our neighborhood. And on the, on the kind of business that we could do better at maybe, or do more of, I would place in, in that category, uh, placing more attention on the Caribbean. It's, uh, it's our, uh, truly our third, uh, border. And, and ever since I would say 9-11 where the U S and Canada and, and even some European, uh, powers sort of, found themselves leaving the region the region in the Caribbean really needs for those folk to come back and pay attention to help fortify their economies and trade and other issues we you know there's too much of a good ar- argument on that end and uh, I think it's one of those things that if we're not careful those vacuums can be filled by others and it's and it's already being filled unfortunately you will see in parts of the Caribbean the uh, the, the Chinese have already, uh, set foot, occupying space, and um, and up to their you know to their old tricks. Uh, if we're not careful, we might find that you know in in our in our third border, all of a sudden we have the Chinese backed right up against us. Um, other areas I'd like to see us uh, work a little more on, you know, is is the issue of counter narcotics. Um, we know how to do it. We know how to do it well. We we know that whole of government approach, and um, I think that we probably over time um inexplicably have and maybe not deliberately throttled back in areas that's compre- you know it's uh, easy to comprehend in a place like Bolivia where the conditions hadn't been right uh, until recently and and we'll see with this recent elections over the weekend whether that gets reversed but um but also I'd say we just don't have the the, the volume caliber and up that we that we we can bring to the game in places like uh Peru and and other and other uh, 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 spots in La- in Latin America i'd like to see I guess a more fortified counter narcotics approach and then um, just to throw out one more thing is I named corruption uh, it's probably one of the biggest ills in the region and uh, it looked uh, a few years back with the um, you know horrendous examples of um, uh, emanating from Brazil on a region wide corruption scandal involving um, the Brazilian um, Construction giant Odebrecht. Um, it looked like we were able, we would be able to use that to, uh, you know, rectify situations, punish the guilty, and go on to better and good behavior. But I think those efforts have slowed down considerably. And while it's undoubtable that you know that some people will pay a price for their bad behavior, I just fear that maybe the lesson won't be learned. So I would like to see more on on corruption issues and um, and divorce the politicization of that and focus on the crime and not, you know, any other kind of political finger pointing. Let's just focus on the issue.
1: So Juan, you obviously mentioned Venezuela, a big issue for the Trump administration, and we're gonna dig into that in a second. But uh, I think something to note in your answer, you had mentioned China several times as making inroads, uh, gaining influence in Latin America. And I guess for many of us, you know, who are looking at China, concerned about China in like the mainstream, uh, we often think about China in the South China Sea near Japan, Korea, those security interests, and then you know in South Asia with certainly some of the actions that have been taken. In uh, the summer. But again, the Belt and Road Initiative is just this broad economic strategy that China's been undertaking. And I'd love to hear a bit more about, I guess, what China's involvement has been like in Latin America, uh, how successful they've been, and uh, how the US has been working to at least thwart that influence, or if the US still needs uh, to do more.
0: Uh, I, that's a very good point. I'm I'm concerned with China's role, with its malign influence, and its bad behavior in the region. And not everybody, not all the countries and players, um, see it clearly. That's understandable. Uh, the, the Chinese are good at concealing um, their activities or, or veiling uh, exactly what's behind their intent. So I, I'll give you one example, like, because I think it's, it's an interesting historical one and it ties together a little bit of the Venezuela point in the nineties, in the seesaw, um, oil policies that were marked by, um, you know, in, in Venezuela over its, uh, large deposits, it reached a moment where it decided to, um, privatize, uh, oil wells that were that the, Uh, Venezuelan state oil company didn't have the technology to exploit the oil was there, but you just they just didn't have the kind of tools, technology, personnel to exploit it. So they decided to take these underperforming wells and uh, give them a a second life by privatizing and in jumped a number of companies, U.S., European, and bought these things and quickly made them productive. Two of those oil wells in this process were purchased by a, a Chinese oil company. They overbid overpaid for these uh, two oil wells, who, which were largely considered to be the, um, the least important, least promising. And so they were a little bit the object of uh, ridicule and chuckles around the uh, you know, oil company uh, table because the Chinese had been hoodwinked. But what they didn't realize is that it was a, a careful strategy by the Chinese. First of all, they bought a ticket to the event, right? Now they're included, they play a role. Before they had none, Maybe they paid a little too much, but they were at the event um Second was, if you're the government of Venezuela, who would you rather be talking to the European or Western company who really extracted a good deal from you and so you were you know um, you benefited less from the deal, or the Chinese who you benefited a lot from, and there's an incentive there to continue to have some sort of business dealing with the Chinese? Well, all I have to tell you is fast forward. To over 20 years later, and we can see what the cost is of buying two underperforming oil wells, overpaying for two underperforming oil wells, and uh, in that way, getting your nose under the tent. So that's a a historical example. But what we have in the region is, you know, the uh, Chinese um, interest in the region is often predatory. It can take the form of exploitation of raw material. There are examples, for example, of, you know, Chinese. companies coming into Guyana and, uh, signing agreements to go ahead and, uh, uh, cut, it's a logging agreement to cut trees for export. Uh, then the Guyanese trying to exert some sort of, um, government control over the activities and Chinese denying that it became a nightmare. Uh, and you know, uh, it soon was something uncontrolled where you they couldn't tell whether the Chinese were cutting down the right trees in the right areas and taking the right precautions and the respect instead of, you know, scarring the Guyanese uh, wilderness. So that just gives you sort of an, uh, just in, in these examples that people might not focus on that are small things, but if but they can be big things. Um, I also look at the Chinese doing things like buying public utilities in, um, In Latin America, first of all, who buys public utilities, right? Especially in Latin America, people don't pay their uh, electric bills. The government's very reluctant to have you cut um, electricity, especially to to lower socioeconomic uh, groups. And uh, it's just not a huge moneymaker. And yet, you know, when you have the electric company in, in important cities like Sao Paulo or Rio being bought up by the Chinese, that's something that should uh, raise concerns. And if you're a student of Latin American history, you'll realize that for decades, um, the region fought against foreign ownership of their um, infrastructure. So when it It became an issue of the united states and france and germany and the uk owning their railroads telegraph and telephone and other um utilities the region oftentimes uh, oftentimes nationalized or had an uprising or otherwise uh fought to regain ownership of these things this is in the 50s 60s and even 70s so i don't understand why all of a sudden that could be imperialism but today you can let the chinese do do exactly that and i don't know about you but i wouldn't want to be a country that has its um infrastructure public utilities owned by another country
2: yeah i mean i think you're bringing uh up great points that largely go unnoticed by the foreign policy blob uh, and so i guess with that i want to dig into venezuela a bit more uh, particularly because you you of course mentioned this chinese influence Uh, But there are other influencing powers as well. And so I guess the question is, uh, why has Venezuela become such an important issue for the Trump administration? You gave the reasoning of the China influence, but um, what are the other uh, compelling reasons why we got to where we are today?
0: Um, Certainly. You know, uh, one of the first things I would think of is energy security. And while that's a lot less significant today today. It certainly was paramount and part of the conversation during the eighteen years that other US administrations did not were less effective on their policies or had no policy towards Venezuela and Chavismo and what was taking place there. We were held hostage, Venezuelan oil either we were the number you know, oil Venezuelan oil was either our number one import was Venezuelan oil sometimes it was number 2 and it slipped to number 3 and today thankfully for a number of reasons it's you know that's insignificant and not a matter but it it did matter back then and ultimately others will tell you if the if Venezuela is a country that sits on the world's largest reserves and historically that has been tied to the United States and US companies and even some of our refineries were built specifically and uniquely to handle Venezuelan oil i think there's a Clearly, an energy security piece. There, uh, it becomes even more important if um, you know if if uh, us an, another U.S. administration decided it was going to act differently on on um, on fracking and some other um, technologies that have given us greater independence on uh, in the oil in the oil realm. Um, But yeah, that's just to throw out one. But I'll tell you, interestingly, there are big issues that presidents take on because the circumstances demand it. And other times presidents take on issues because they want to do it or someone recommends it to them or whispers in the ear of the importance of something. And in the case of uh, President Trump, he gravitates and takes on the Venezuela issue. For his own reasons it wasn't someone who whispered in his ear it wasn't someone who's saying we have to do this the president realized and recognizes us early on in the administration and right after he um he uh, ordered that the uh our policy on cuba be reversed the very next order was to take on the behemoth of venezuela and re uh, reorient you know the u.s aircraft carrier towards you know venezuela issues And I I think that's important because there's nothing more um, refreshing than to have the full support of a president who is entirely tied to and and, uh, in sync and determined to move forward on a policy.
1: So I think uh, I think one of the biggest things that come to mind when we think of Venezuela is really the leadership in terms of why we have, I guess, such a strong issue with them. I mean, Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela how has he been able to you know, hold on to his power? Uh, is the internal security apparatus around him that strong? Or has he been getting help from uh, foreign beneficiaries? Has there been a lot of external support that's been like propping him up? I mean, how is this regime
0: surviving? Well, unquestionably, you know, the, the phenomenon of Maduro arriving um, to power is he's actually, when Chavez falls ill with cancer and he needs to uh, name, uh, uh, successor, he handpicks to much to everyone's surprise. He picks Maduro, a person who had no grassroots support, no particular influence, uh, among the leadership of the party of, of the Chavista party. This is a person who was, yeah, he was, you know, important in that he was a senior member, but he was a senior member of the party, uh, and the government because Chavez, uh, gave him a nod. So it was a little bit surprising when he, designates him as his successor. Um, and you would have guessed that maybe he would not have remained in power long. There are other people in Chavismo who savor the presidency, maybe a a little less now, but certainly it's something that there are, there are others in competition and there is Chavismo is not a monolith. So there are, there are people who are competing with Maduro for uh, leadership of Chavismo. Uh, his ability to resist is really based on a system of rewards that exists as long as he can, you know, take uh, the ill-gotten gains, money derived from, you know, robbing government coffers and corruption and even criminal enterprises and, you know, and deal out that money to Key military figures, key civilian figures. As long as he can continue to do that, then he's got that their allegiance. And quite frankly, right now, in for a penny, in for a pound for those people. Even though that money isn't what it used to be, even though you're not getting the tens of millions or hundreds of millions that you were that uh, of uh, rewards you were getting before, you have no choice because you're already you're already tainted. You have uh, the stain on you of having received those funds, and so you're part of the team whether you like it or not. Um, the other piece of why he remains in power is, quite honestly, any decision that's political in Venezuela is enforced by the Venezuelan military. And it's actually been historical. The Venezuelan military has been the guarantor of democracy in the country and has been the one with, that's uh, been looking over the shoulder of the civilian politicians for a long time and the restoration of democracy a few times in the history of Venezuela was on in the arms of the Venezuelan military. So whether you're in power or not in power, it's because the Venezuelan military either supports you or doesn't. In this case, he, you know, again, the Venezuelan military is not uh, a monolith, but quite honestly, uh, he's been able to keep the allegiance of the military. If that were to fail, I mean that's the end of Maduro, right? But the problem here, and you, I think you mentioned it, hit the nail on the head, is you know the influence of outsiders. And in the case of Maduro, if you were to say, what's his inner circle? Who gives him the best advice, um, other than his uh, spouse? I would have to say, he, you know, a number of Cuban advisors who tap uh, the left and right parameters, make sure that you know when he's absent, some good advice that he can always uh, refer to them now i'm i'm not one of these believers that there's this uh you know dark cabal behind uh, maduro and that you know the cubans are the puppeteers and they pull the strings I, I i certainly don't believe in that but i do believe that they provide an important crutch and pillar of which he relies on uh to to build his uh to his leadership stay in and, in and power they certainly supplement his secu- his personal security force because of a distrust that they may have in venezuelan forces to to do that job Uh, and also the cubans play a dark role when it comes to the venezuelan military because they've contributed through their intelligence apparatus and the sharing of what they're able to collect um to um disrupt and and to dismantle any incipient uh, uh grumblings or um coup attempts or coup planning or even coup discussions anything that could even smell of disloyalty the the cubans sniff it out and are able to help uh dismantle and end up arresting anybody who could even be um you know thinking dreaming or commenting on something like this so that's an important outside force and then lastly i would note that maybe not as much now but in um i'd say after 24 maybe 2014 to 2017 it was critical. Uh, for Maduro to stay afloat by getting loans and other forms of aid, assistance, and money from Russia, particularly Russia and China. Now, while that uh, dried up rather um, quickly from China because the Chinese aren't there to give things away for free, right, it's to make money, um, and, but nonetheless, they, you know, by floating loans, by passing the money early on, it enabled them to continue to stay uh, viable. And the Russians did as well. That all has dried up, and then, which contributes, of course, to why Venezuela is the economic disaster that you see today.
2: Juan, I want to follow up on your your comment about Russia. Just you know, as a Russianist, I'm you know perpetually interested in the topic. Uh, So, why do you think um, you know, or I guess maybe the better question is, how far do you think Russia will go in ensuring that Maduro remains in power? Right? I mean, Russia has its own. Uh, issues domestically and, and its sphere of influence uh, right now. Um, we've talked about in previous episodes, but um, with uh, with Venezuela in particular and maybe Latin America more broadly, um, what is Russia's interest and um, where do you see uh, their support going?
0: You know, for the Russians, this is an inexpensive way to play geopolitics and stick their thumb in the eye of the Americans at a very low cost. You know, as long as they don't have to give too much away for free, that they can sell it to the to the Venezuelan regime, as long as they can be, you know, mischievous and make life difficult for us, uh, they, they'll do that. And they do it because, you know, it's it's a return on their favor in Crimea and in other, in other places. Uh, as, you know, as far as keeping in power, of course, the Russians would like to do as much as possible, but I, I would not, I think it's easy to overestimate how much the, the Russians are actually interested in doing i don't think they'll take extreme measures i don't think i mean they might talk big but i don't think they'll take particularly extreme measure um and even i don't think they even like maduro that much you know i can imagine a scenario where you know when maduro visits putin and putin thinks this is the guy this is my guy this is the guy that i've got to support um and you'll recall that in maduro's um trip most recent trip to moscow it was kind of a, a uh, uneventful. Nothing important was done. Signed, given, promised. Uh, on Putin's face, it looked like you know, uh, wasn't his his favorite day or favorite event. Nothing, it just seemed very, um, almost uh, mechanical, perfunctory, boring. Uh, and I just don't see. I, I, it's a great opportunity again at a low cost to really rub our noses in it. But I, if if something were to stumble uh I think the Russians might tap out. They're willing to put some equity at the UN because, you know, you gotta support an ally. And um and maybe they uh you know maybe tomorrow they'll be more willing to do something that benefits Venezuela financially, but I you know, maybe not. I just think it's um we 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 can fall into danger of overstating uh the Russian desire to assist Maduro. They'll do it. They want to do it, but That you know, how much equity and uh, what price are they willing to pay? I'm not so sure they're willing to to be all in.
2: So what about COVID-19, right? We're in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, It's hit, you know, every country, um, some more than others, but what's the impact uh, on Venezuela, right? I mean, the humanitarian concerns predate uh, the pandemic, uh, but they come to mind first in what the situation is like on the ground. And then uh, what are the other challenges that we've seen, whether economic or political, that have been, you know, made worse uh, by this
0: COVID nineteen pandemic? Well, you know, COVID is is like many of the things in Venezuela is is you really don't know because the government has been dishonest and unreliable in its reporting and its policies and in its transparency or lack of transparency in this case, in everything you can think of. So the first thing you have to do is take data and throw it out the window. Um, but you, but what you can say is you can see how important figures in the government have gotten COVID and passed away or military officers. Even when you've got someone, uh, a key um, rival of Maduro's in, rival slash ally of Maduro's in Chavismo, Diosdado Cabello, and he got COVID. I, I think he got scared. There, you can you can see how certain behaviors and issues have shifted after key people in the regime got sick. Uh, but they, but I think more importantly is being a good old fashioned dictatorship. They use the instruments of repression. Um. Back with a COVID backdrop. So with the first thing they did to enforce you know, um, um, uh, universal uh, mask policy and also curfews and that sort of behavior on the street is they used the same regime forces who repress demonstrators and um, protesters, and they used the same people to come out and enforce these laws. Well, let me tell you, that these are the Darth Vader's, that are you know against the population, and now you roll them out for uh, enforcing health regulations. People will obey them, and so the government has taken and abused the, the the issues of COVID to keep people at home, keep them from demonstrating, and and keep them in line. So that's an interesting take on uh, you know using the muscle of the regime to be under the pretext of COVID enforcement. You also have in um, in the issue of COVID now for the. Um, an interesting collaboration and cooperation from the Iranians, from the Cubans, from the Chinese, and from the Russians, who have all contributed something, whether it's PPE, or in the case of Cuba, uh, medical personnel, or in the case uh, of Iran, um, you know, some, uh, uh, some of the, uh, you know, like ventilators, some of the basic things that you would expect. The Chinese have uh, more than one occasion sent sizable quantities of assistance to the venezuelans so this is one area where they have been the beneficiaries and now they um they claim that they are going to that they're volunteering their population to receive the experimental russian vaccine which the you know the sputnik six sputnik six or whatever the hell they they call it which is um which i would i wouldn't i wouldn't volunteer to get that shot but anyway the uh, it gives you an idea it's solidified the solidarity of those um uh, of those, um, you know, allies of the, of the regime. I, I think those are some of the most, um, outstanding aspects of the, you know, COVID. Yeah. You know, it's impacted on the, on uh, everything from, um, you know, food to, you know, uh, to movement, you know, as you know, there's a gasoline crisis. Imagine if you fall ill and have to go in a car to a hospital, uh, a hospital probably is, is not prepared to handle you anyway? It just, puts an, uh, it underscores, puts an extra dark line under uh, the issue of health and and security.
1: So, I mean, you had mentioned some of these crises. And I mean, aside from COVID, what are the primary challenges to stability in Venezuela? I mean, if Maduro is removed or if he steps down by chance, I mean, there'll certainly be a lot of factions seeking to assume control. Uh, How can the United States and other international actors play a role to ensure that Venezuela sheds its autocratic tendencies. I mean, I know we saw some things uh, happen in 2019 and uh, 2018, but uh, what does the future look like?
0: You know, unfortunately, the future looks tough. If you look at a D-Day scenario, right, the day after uh, a, a regime departs or shares government, or certainly, you know, after Maduro steps down, the security challenges are overwhelming. If you sit there, it could be the kind of thing that could drive you into depression. You not only have uh, members of the, sizable members of the FARC in your territory, uh, resident and active, and the ELN, another Colombian guerrilla group, which has in the last few years has, um, in a phenomenon, has expanded from its influence on the border with Colombia to occupying or having a presence in, in the vast areas of the Venezuelan territory, especially those that have an, um, a lack of presence of state, right? Where these, where you have everything, all sorts of illegal activity from illegal logging, illegal mining, and those sorts of things, which now have an ELN flavor to it. Talk about a foreign a guerrilla organization invading your space. Um, and, and they exist either through largesse, ignorance, or in alliance with the regime. Either formally or or through informal alliances with security services and governors and that sort of thing, but that's only two menaces. I mean, those those exist and have existed, even if they have expanded. But talk about interna- uh, international trafficking or drug trafficking organizations. You're talking about a whole list of gangs of just bad guys everything from these motorcycle gangs known as colectivos that now have been deputized by chavismo you've got neighborhood gangs that you know have access to uh to uh, uh military grade weapons you have um uh prison gangs the pranes you have mega, mega gangs, mega bandas, mega gangas, you know, like you have all sorts of these really bad guys in, in and around the urban areas. Cause at least the FARC and ELN are in, in rural, um, you know, uh, parts of the country. So that's a security challenge. And just to make it, um, even worse, imagine if, the way you come to power is in something that most people, most Chavistas aren't in agreement. So now you have to add to the list of your security challenges, those members of the military who may not agree with you coming into power, or sharing power, or members of Chavismo who decide that they're going to unearth weapons from some secret cash site and go ahead and take up arms or create, you know, violent um, uh, resistance to a new government. So there are a lot of security challenges that could be really um distressing to a new government, but uh the the fact is that we'll, you know, we'll need to figure it out and work on it. People are doing it right now, so I, I applaud that. So uh, let's shift gears a bit because uh,
1: I want to talk about Colombia. So Juan, you have had extensive experience in working with Colombia. Uh of course, as many of us know, the country has seen decades of instability. To as you mentioned earlier, the guerrilla group FARC, F A R C, uh, which in 2017 actually transitioned from being an armed paramilitary group into a political party. Uh, so, since this, I guess, peace agreement was signed in 2017, what does the political situation in Col- Colombia looked like? Uh, do is the threat of rebellion still? A, cr- a critical and real threat, or has Colombia moved on since then?
0: Well, it's uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. After the peace accords were signed and the FARC folded into the, a democratic uh, Colombia, what you had is almost immediately a number of FARC, especially mid level commanders, who decided that they would not adhere to. Uh, to the peace accord, that they would be dissidents, and they would keep their weapons and and keep their commitment to fighting the um, government authorities from their you know entrenched positions in the mountains and to jungles of of Colombia. Why did they do it? Was it ideological and political? perhaps maybe, maybe some of them. But the other piece that you have to realize is that these folk have been now, been the beneficiaries of drug trafficking activities and other illegal activities that line their pockets and if they have to turn in your in their weapons and be and return to society whether you're a campesino or a school teacher or an administrator whatever you were you certainly aren't going to have access to cash the money and the um, ill-gotten gains that you that you would have as a you know quasi guerrilla and so um, you had a, a phenomenon then you had people who never gave up then you had the people who slipped right the they're not really dis they're not really dissidents because they maybe had had turned themselves in Then realized that peace isn't as cool as war and that they'd rather be you know big fish little pond you know you have to remember some of these people are were like mayors and could um you know they uh, freely travel through parts of Rural Colombia, and so some of them returned or fell back to the old life, and then there were those that never gave themselves up because they were living in safe haven areas in both Ecuador and in uh, Venezuela. So now you have and and the sizable number, and as you know, some of the the senior FARC guys um, returned. um, Ivan Marquez, being the most prominent, Uh, he had been a uh, top guerrilla commander, top leadership of the FARC. Uh, head of a front, and then he was one of the top negotiators for peace. But uh, quickly, uh, you know, it became evident that, you know, this is not only a really bad guy, but this is a really bad guy who continues his bad behavior and uh, is and is involved in narcotics trafficking still. Uh, he was supposed to be a, a member of, of Congress in, in Colombia, but he, he left all that and went back into the mountains. But in this case, in his historic... Camp inside Venezuela. So here you have, uh, you know, a lingering FARC security threat to the Colombian authorities, nowhere near what it used to be, and at the extreme, and 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 representing the and no longer an exist, existential threat to the Colombian government, but certainly something to be taken seriously. And of course, the ELN has continued to exist. They never were adher- There was no peace plan with them. And uh, so that, I mean, between those two, they continue to represent um, a hell of a security challenge for the Colombian authorities with or without their participation in narcotics uh, activities. And so that leads me to the third group, which are these criminal, large criminal bands that are, you know, the old school drug traffickers fighting for a slice of activity and, um, and establishing themselves in the different corners of Colombia to, you know, help. Uh, plant, process, uh, and export cocaine. Definitely. And I think, uh, I mean, what you said about this idea
1: of lingering security threats versus like more explicit, like, you know, outright war, I think it's important to note and certainly something that we all should keep track of in the coming years. I mean... But also, I mean, like, Colombia still been seeing some of this outright, quote-unquote, chaos, for lack of the be- for lack of a better word. I mean, there have been significant protests since uh, 2019 that have been rooted in a variety of grievances. Uh, what is happening with these protests? And how have these protests really impacted a broader region? Will it impact a broader region? Uh, will it really have a big effect on U.S. interests?
0: The phenomenon of of these demonstrations, most of which took place, you know, we're talking going back to November of of, uh, last year, and up until uh, COVID measures took over and forced everybody indoors, uh, was uh, most distressingly viewed in Colombia and in Chile. What made that even more distressing is that those are two of the countries that have some of the most solid laws and behavior, and professional uh and uh solid middle class and and are countries that other countries look up to and want to emulate and become so if those are the countries that are you know that are burning things down and and demonstrating and it took everybody by surprise nobody claims to have known it was on the horizon then that's that then that's something to be um that's something of concern why did it happen you know i i don't i don't have an answer but i have heard a few um a few theories that I think have merit. Uh, one is that these are societies in Colombia, in particular, where you have people who are increasingly brought into a modern country with you know modern facilities and big cities. I mean, those days where you know Medellin was you know a drug capital are long behind them, and it's a pro- it's a Beautiful, clean, promising, prosperous city with hardworking individuals. And among the many talents that Colombia has, it's its just human capital, you know, human resources. People are educated, go to good schools, work hard, and push the country forward. Imagine if they hadn't had sixty years of civil war. What kind of country Colombia would be? And so there, and 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 a country that is now. It's a manufacturing powerhouse. It is an agricultural powerhouse. It's a it knows uh, responsible and uh, and uh, professional level policing and military activities and the rule of law and all these things that make it a great a great country. So if it's so good, why are they demonstrating, right? I think part of it is they realize that how good it is, right? They, now that there's, they're uh, ultra connected, right? When you're Colombian, you have you know almost in every corner of the country you've got a cell phone and you got Wi-Fi and you're watching you know Netflix and 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 Amazon Prime and you're and you you have access to this entire world and you know that whatever you have it's it's not the same as it is for Americans or French or Italians or maybe Indians or you know or Japanese and so you have the, the this youth that looks at an opportunity and what they can become. So it's not satisfying enough to be who you are. You think it's good, but how come I don't have a car and I don't live in an apartment and I watch on TV? People my age have apartments and live in a loft and they have a car and you know, or they have a scooter or they have something, right? I think those compare socioeconomic comparisons are bound to take place. Uh, I've you know, I've heard a theory that part of this is their super connectivity makes them very aware of. Of the possibilities out there, um, I don't. I, to me, it sounds logical because I can't understand and explain why it is that you know you would take um, in a place like Chile, where you have a very modern uh, metro system, or you have a bus slash uh, mass transit system in in Bogota and other cities in Colombia, and that are new, and you would destroy those, precisely the things that make you. Um, advanced and ahead of others in the region is something that you're destroying. I don't understand that piece. I don't know if that's a good answer for you. I don't know that I have one, but I'm just struck by some, why something like that would happen. And I also question, you know, in Colombia, they had demonstrations a few weeks back because of um, police abuse of an individual who was arrested and ended up dying in police custody. And um, and it was a, a resurgence of, of, you know, demonstrations of violent expression. Uh, and it's died down uh, since then. But I would—I I wonder if when COVID um, is better under control, whether those demonstrations are going to be, you know, are going to reassume.
2: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that you know this—the police violence that we've seen, uh, you know, around the world, whether it be in the United States, Latin America, in Africa, um, and a lot of it, you know, kind of driven by our interconnectedness and how technology has played a role in mobilizing. The populations of these countries. Um, But with that, you know, you you mentioned Netflix, and I think for many of our listeners, they might be familiar with the situation in Colombia because of its dramatization, the relevance of the war on drugs, shows like Narcos. Uh, So the U.S., of course, has been involved both supporting and countering the war on drugs over the years. Uh, I'm I'm just curious what the US-Colombia relationship has been over the past few decades and maybe what the U.S. goals for the war on drugs were and how we approach it today whether or not it's different
0: well you know the the fictionalization which is what happens in this it's not doc, you know narcos isn't a documentary and it's it's uh it's very entertaining even if you have to suspend this belief right because <laughs> the main actor is brazilian and speaks spanish with a brazilian accent and you know and Other actors, I mean, if you do know the language, you can differentiate why, you know, you have to suspend disbelief, I guess is my point, but it's a hell of a good entertainment, but it's not a documentary and entirely truthful, but you can get an idea of what the worst of the worst could look like, and you already heard me talk about Medellin being, you know, a restored city, so imagine how far they've come, where those sorts of things, where you can't have a drug baron just blow up a police headquarters or place bombs willy-nilly in the... That's, I mean, that hasn't exist, existed for a long, long time in in Colombia. So, obviously some things worked and some things were done well. The U.S. and, and Colombian authorities know exactly what works. Um, one of the unintended consequences of destroying these large drug organizations is that they become smaller, atomized, strong drug org- organizations. And so... You know, now it's harder to find because they're smaller and they, and they act in, um, in in ways that are harder to detect and to neutralize and to work against effectively. But we also know to, that we have to destroy networks, right, that you just can't arrest people and take drugs because they just produce more drugs and uh, recruit new people. So you have to, you know, get at their money. You need to get at their suppliers. You need to get at their um, at, um where the coca plants are growing, you need to get to the maceration pits. You need to get to, you know, their, um, transportation nodes. You need to, So it's gotta be a whole government approach. You need to create better conditions for the people in those areas that they're exploiting. And you need to create, um, a system where you work at the organization at all its levels. And, it, and, and we, we know that that works where it f- has failed us when all are the big indicators were favorable was when the, Numbers uh, the uh, production of production uh, of planning of coca production of cocaine um, uh, skyrocketed, and they did that um, as a result of the peace accords in two ways. First of all, just before the peace accords were signed, the Colombian government decided that uh, they could no longer do aerial spraying, which was something that was done in concert with the United States. There's you know deep reasons for that. They cited uh studies that and you know health effects that are disputed um and what happened was that since that was the most effective way to do away with coca plants we saw a resurgence in um in growth the other phenomenon that happened soon afterwards as part of the peace accords an agreement was made that that you know individuals that were growing coca um, would stop growing coca and be compensated, receive a payment from the government uh, as compensation. Uh, the argument by the FARC being that these people were growing coca because they didn't have any. there's nothing else viable. These people needed to be compensated in some way. Well, it had the unintended consequences that, predictably, uh, for some, uh, more people started to grow coca so they could get more compensation when the government came around. And so the production of coca just again skyrocketed. Less uh, eradication, more growth. And that's what, and then that's why we had a number of record years, um, disappointingly, record years of growth and production of of, uh, cocaine, something that's been reversed by the Duke administration with a lot of hard work, with a strategy, with uh, cooperation from the US and with the understanding that they've got to take on tough measures like reenact or you know reinstating er- uh, eradication aerial eradication.
1: So uh, just before we wrap up the interview I wanted to talk a little bit about Cuba because when we look at Cuba really I mean when we look to US history and the Cold War I mean Cuba's played such a pivotal role. Uh, I mean Cuba was almost the center of a nuclear confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, but looking at today, how would you categorize, how would you characterize us policy towards Cuba, especially with the Trump administration's more hardline approach? And why was there this shift, uh, from the Obama administration's quote, easing up on Cuba towards this return to a hardline stance?
0: Yes. Thank you. Cuba is a very vexing, uh, phenomenon for, you know, the U S and it just so happens to be not only, uh, foreign policy issue but a domestic and electoral one as well uh, make complicating um, issues regarding cuba immensely so if if your goal is you had a number of questions there but if your goal is to make the cubans put the hurt on the cubans make them miserable kick them in the shins and uh, really harm their economy then you've met your goal right it's success with administration administration's doing. If your goal is to restore democracy and open independence for the you know and uh, for the normal Cuban person and re- and have them restore faith that something's around the corner, you haven't done that. And I don't know how you get from A to B because we have tried A before for decades. We we beat them overhead with the two by four, but we don't. But we still didn't um, show the results of those efforts leading to be, which I think was probably what was behind the Obama administration's desire to change strategy, right? We had a lot of, we knew what didn't work. So let's try something different. Now, let's get back to why um, President Trump decided to take the direction he took, which was to reverse Cuba policy. First of all, some of that is Cuba's fault, because the agreement started to fray even before uh, President Trump arrived. And it was fraying under the Obama administration. Were the Cubans who were used to diddling us, to you know they they know us better than we know us. They knew that they could get away with stuff, and we would suck it up. But the, but things changed. So one of the first things they did they started to go back on their agreement in several ways. But one of the most important ones was that they had agreed to release a number of political Cuban held political prisoners, and with a lot of emphasis from responsible um, U.S. authorities. They finally abided by all that, but they ended up, in short order, starting to rearrest them again. And I think if you use that as an example, you can cite why the president, along with what he used to say about NAFTA, well, he said this was a really bad deal, and we needed to get a better deal. And it was a campaign promise. There are a number of campaign promises. You'll see that President Trump, you know, sticks to his word when it comes to these things. And, um, and he promised he was going to reverse Cuba policy. It was, a camp, it was on the campaign trail. He said it multiple times. And the first thing he said was, I want to, you know, I want to deliver on this. So that was, um, you know, th- throwing a grenade under the table and destroying, you know, rolling back the Obama normalization process. So that's how we get there, and again, it goes you know just like Venezuela, authentic to President Trump, just like immigration, very authentic. Just like drug, uh, the fight against drugs, very authentic. This issue on Cuba is very authentic. So uh, you know where do we go from here? I'm I, I'm not I'm not so sure uh, if our policy is to continue to beat them over the head. Uh, my advice would be we need to, if we really want to attain our goals, we need to also give them an out. Right, I think um, from my own experience with Cubans, beating them over the head just stiffens their resolve.
1: And just briefly, I mean, since 1958, since that revolution in Cuba, Cuba has largely just been governed and led by the two Castro brothers, Fidel and Raúl. And I mean, now while Raúl isn't president anymore, he is still the de facto leader of the country. But certainly, he's getting old. Uh, What do you think post-Castro Cuba? looks like? Do you think uh, post-Castro Cuba will be different in terms of how it approaches its diplomatic and international relationships? Do you think that
0: there will be significant changes or will it just be more of the same? Well, I think that surprisingly, Castro probably entered, agreed to enter these secret negotiations and a normalization with the United States as a way of preserving his legacy and the revolution. This is a way that um, that you could find an easier out that benefits economically cuba that you loosen some economic and maybe maybe some of these political uh, you know the release of um political prisoners would have been a good start but what happens in the end is that um you know you're talking about a country that has made the u.s the enemy every day uh since you know revolution of 59 and and so what happens is it's hard for people who've dedicated a whole life to fighting the US imperialist to turn the next day and decide oh we're going to smoke the peace pipe and we're going to find all these areas for cooperation remember there were US companies of different nature jumping in there transportation companies manufacturers hotels i mean they were going to if things had worked out the cubans would have gotten an incredible boost by the kind of investment interest and um uh, uh, attention that uh, Cuba was positive attention that Cuba would have gotten from the United States and others. So in the end, uh, what's a Castro? You know, departure going to look like probably more like uh, it looks like now. I think they've they've left the people in place to guarantee a transition that saves the revolution.
2: Juan, I'm going to try to sneak in one last question, if you don't mind. Uh, if we look to the next five years. What are some of the greatest challenges and threats to U.S. security as it pertains to Latin America?
0: Well, I guess I I think I'll probably surprise you by saying that um, the first ones that come to mind probably wouldn't be ones you would necessarily uh, go to directly. I would say corruption is one of the top ones. Corruption has an ability to corrode democracy, corrode the justice system, corrode law enforcement, corrode security. it also has unintended consequences. If you pay, um, if you're a construction company and you're you're paying, uh, you know, bribes and such, and you to use uh, secondary or poor quality uh, raw material, and consequently a bridge falls, collapses, kills people because of corruption. People don't look at it this way, but those the corruption is one of the most insidious and and uh, toxic aspects of Latin America right now, and I fear. That we that we haven't taken an opportunity to help excise it. Oh, well, you can't excise it, but certainly uh, work hard against it. So I would put corruption up there just because of what it means to so many other things. Not corruption in and of itself, but the impact it has. Second, again, something curious, and maybe not everybody would agree with me, but access to clean drinking water. I think as as time goes on and we tax our planet and you know we have <clears throat> issues that were not built for the kind of Population shifts and growths that we have today, uh, it gets harder and harder. If you look at places like uh, Venezuela is a good example. It's um, It has a, an enormous uh, hydroelectric plant that also has a, a dam that serves most of the electric and water needs of the most populous areas of the country. And um, because of over time, everything from deforestation and silt and erosion and so forth, this, and by the way, this happens in other countries, not just Venezuela. This kind of thing will threaten uh, the availability of a constant, reliable source of clean drinking water. And it, and you, were, you may recall that we had water shortages in Sao Paulo a few years ago because there wasn't enough rain. And you know you have it's one of the largest cities in the world. You we start placing pressure on what we have, and this is just in in areas that already have water. Imagine areas that struggle to have water, and we can't get water to them. So I just throw that out. Future wars might, you know, you have to think of what future wars can be fought over. Look at the situation over dam, dam construction in China, in Africa, in, in places where it has a, a tremendous impact on people downstream. Uh, the And I think I would marry with that infrastructure. The infrastructure in our region was built in the 40s 50s 60s that infrastructure and a lot of it in the 20s to be honest with you a lot of that infrastructure were built for populations that are one-fifth one-tenth the size that we have today and this is infrastructure that's collapsing that will either have to be rebuilt shored up or otherwise substituted and today we don't have the money to make these mega projects and uh, and more importantly, I think sometimes we don't have the political will. So we're suffering. You know, it's not like Europe. Remember, Europe, Europe was savaged by World War II. And so a lot of their infrastructure is a lot newer uh, than it is in, in, in Latin America, just to give you one example. But again, infrastructure. And then the maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you two answers that are probably more in line with what you expected me to say. Uh, China worries me. China's gobbling up things all around the world. They're a lot more nimble than we are. Um, we've made reference that this year the Chinese have taken on an incredibly aggressive posture around the world. We can cite quickly half a dozen, you know, you, we've cited the South China Seas. We can cite uh, their position on Hong Kong, their aggressive nature towards Taiwan. They're locking horns with the Indians and in the uh, line of... of uh, Actual control. You have them uh, pushing back on the Australians because and and, and creating a um, and using their economic and trade might to push back on Australia af- after Australians criticize them for their lack of ob- openness over COVID and on and on. You know you have Huawei, um, you have the Uyghur situation. I mean, a, and they have lost their mind, right? They don't. The Chinese used to be a little more meek and mild mannered in their defense today they double down. And so I. when we look at that and we look at their tendencies in the region, in the world, but in the region, I'm concerned about the Chinese and we need to come up with an effective way to push back. A lot of our friends, partners, and neighbors in the region haven't come around to seeing China as the threat it is. They just think it's a competition between the U.S. and China. And sometimes you got to go China, sometimes you got to go U.S. I think that's not a good way to look at it. Um, And then maybe the last point would be, um, I think, a resurgence of the radical left in the region under the guise of maybe democracy and the destabilizing factor that could be And the two countries where I'm most concerned about that are Colombia and Chile.
1: And and on that note, uh, Juan, we want to thank you so much for joining us. I think in that last answer, actually, you made a very interesting and good point on the role of water and access to water as perhaps playing a pivotal role in future conflicts and perhaps being the subject of future wars. Uh, certainly, I think that should be an. We should probably devote an entire episode to that topic because it's very uh, comprehensive and. It's hugely important, but uh, Juan, you've given us a great sort of insight on your experience, your perspectives on these uh, key Latin American countries and U.S. interests in the region. And I think many of our listeners will uh, find them very insightful, very interesting, and uh, they'll learn a lot
0: from this. So thank you so much for taking time. I'm glad I was. Uh, uh, you find it uh, helpful. And whenever you need uh, anything, let me know. I enjoyed it tremendously.
2: To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbagpod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.